People have been living here for four or five days. No government official came here. There is no help from the government. Our children are starving. Our livestock are starving. Disease has broken out here. There are mosquitoes here. Nobody cares about us. Where should we go? It's been six months since the floods in Pakistan. In June last year, a brutal combination of climatic factors unleashed a devastating deluge that would not cease until August. Their extent is hard to comprehend. The direct impact of the flooding killed at least 1,700 people and as many as 40 million have been affected. Over a million houses have likely been destroyed and nearly half of Pakistan's crops have been ruined. When the rains finally stopped, one-third of the country was left underwater. And things have only gotten worse since then. Pakistan has been rocked by successive bouts of political instability, the economic crisis has only deepened, and inflation has rocketed out of control. Combined with the fallout from the floods, Pakistan is on the brink of a full-fledged disaster. Six months on, what have the floods left behind in Pakistan? What impact have they had on the economy and especially on food security? And how do we try to mitigate future disasters? I'm Ali Abbas Ahmadi, and you're listening to The New Arab Voice. When the rain came, it it never stopped. It might take a break for an hour or so, but then it would start again. There was just water everywhere, on all sides. Our area is a desert, but even that was flooded. That's how much water there was. This is Ghulam Mustafa, a farmer from a village called Yar Muhammad Kaladi in Pakistan's southern Sindh province, home to the country's biggest city, Karachi. Sindh is one of the worst affected provinces by the floods. During the floods, our situation was such that there was four or five feet of water in our home. We struggled to leave the house, but made it to the sand dunes in the nearby desert. There was so much water in our home that it remained there for 10, 12 or 15 days. Speaking from Pakistan on a sometimes patchy phone line, Ghulam Mustafa recounted how the floodwaters swept away everything, his home, his farm and his livelihood. The family of six only returned to their land at the beginning of this year, five months after the floods, to find it completely ravaged. When we returned from the dunes, we removed the water using large drums and by making channels in the ground. The situation was such that we had nothing to eat. All of our stores had been ruined. Our house was completely broken down and destroyed. And it's still like that. With his job washed away, along with all the food and grain that he had stored to feed his family, Ghulam Mustafa had to seek work elsewhere. For food, I have been working whenever I can as a labourer, and we manage with what ration we can get to fill our stomachs. And for a house, we have built a little hut on the same land where our house stood earlier. Our home's foundation remain, but the rest has fallen. The boundary wall has also collapsed, and we used some of the rubble to build a little hut. 
placed a rope bed inside and we're managing that way. For farmers in the affected region, the floods were especially cruel. The same rivers and rains Ghulam Mustafa relied on have upended his entire life. We could not plant wheat in most places except where there was no standing water. We planted seeds in 3%, 4%, maybe 5% of the farms. By and large, the other farms in Pakistan are similarly useless. The mighty Indus River, by far the longest in Pakistan, running down the country like a spine from north to south. Originating in the Tibetan Himalayas, it flows through parts of India and nearly all of Pakistan's provinces and territories before emptying into the Arabian Sea. Its massive basin spans more than a million square kilometers across several countries and covers more than half of Pakistan's land area. This region has been home to humans since the Bronze Age and in recent times has been Pakistan's breadbasket. And so when the rains arrived last June and the river and its tributaries flooded, the waters engulfed everything. 1,700 people died and between 30 and 40 million, roughly 15% of Pakistan's population, or equivalent to the population of Canada, were affected. For months, millions suffered through cold winters and waterborne diseases that ravaged through the refugee population. As is often the case, those worst affected in the provinces of Sindh and Balochistan, belong to the lowest social rung of society. A lot of diseases spread in our area during the flood. It was mostly malaria as there were so many mosquitoes, diarrhea and skin diseases. Malaria was spreading because none of the medicines were effective somehow and our drinking water was also ruined. What we have is not appropriate to drink anymore. So now we either boil the water or we collect the water from the side of the road near our farms and drink that. One of the biggest problems has been the destruction of Pakistan's crops. Pakistan's agriculture sector, which contributes 23% of the country's GDP and employs around 40% of its labor force, was severely hit by the floods. According to some estimates, Pakistan lost 40% of its cotton and 15% of its rice crops, while Foreign Minister Bilawal Bhutto provided a far more gloomy assessment, saying that about 80 to 90% of Pakistan's crops were damaged. Agriculture is the primary source of income for farmers across several districts in Sindh and Balochistan, and many lost up to 70% of their yield. All told, Prime Minister Shehbaz Sharif estimated that the economic devastation caused by the floods amounted to around 30 billion US dollars. And for a population that was already struggling with food insecurity, the floods have simply made it worse. You know, we have actually uh, lost 9.8 million acres of land that was uh, cultivable previously, and uh, no, it's not cultivable. But you know, it's the it's equal to the land, um, you know, the Czech Republic. This is Dr. Zafar Mahmoud, an independent expert on food safety and food security, who has worked as a consultant with the Pakistani government and the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization. Yeah, this basically the the way we uh, measure the uh, this uh, food insecurity is like this is called as integrated phase classification. You know, so the four is the emergency and three is basically a crisis. You know, so they were before the floods, around four million people in Pakistan were assessed to be in this integrated phase classification four, or IPC four group. 
classification that means there would be an emergency situation it has to be treated like an emergency um, and it is expected as 1.1 million more people getting into this by this year uh, I, and again i would say these are the conservative figures because they were only taken for the you know sake of these flood effects the economic situation has only gotten worse since then a stagnant economy a massive 31 and a half percent inflation a currency that has depreciated by more than 11% since april last year and political instability have added to the humanitarian crisis uh, but uh, in last two months you know the price rises you know this is 600 to 700% in vegetables is more than you know around 100% in the basic uh, crop like wheat Uh, especially in uh, if we talk about the the healthy food items like eggs and chicken and milk you know again their prices are very very high becoming much more unaffordable for people you know especially the one who are at the lower strata you know these rising prices all lead to food insecurity for millions of people across the country like Ghulam Mustafa and his family who have lost everything and are feeling the pinch The rising prices are also because of the floods, I think. People's livelihood have all been destroyed, so the rising prices has made our lives even worse, especially for those who have no work anymore. Definitely, definitely I think everything is more expensive now. The high price of basic foodstuffs continues to be a serious impediment to the country, but in many cases simply finding food is a challenge. This food insecurity has created a number of devastating knock-on effects which could affect poverty, education and health in the long run. When we talk about like floods and this kind of situation this aggravates the food safety situation further in a sense that like once we have enough flood you know this the whole water you know that gets contaminated the supply of uh, clean drinking water you know th- that becomes questionable then the spread of disease the health uh, uh, issues that arise uh due to flood you know the disease like cholera and the skin disease and the pneumonia and all these infectious diseases are on 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 the rise as well coupled with the fact that there's no enough good health facility either as well so they are actually aggravating the situation in a very bad way uh, like diarrhea you know if we uh, if people would suffer majority of the kids would suffer from diarrhea and then even if you give them enough food you know they would not be able to digest or absorb all those nutrients so this is you know uh, a kind of a triple burden on on them you know they are not not having enough food or not be, being healthy and then you know not absorbing actually so all these things uh, create issues for the population unlike in the western world Most farmers in Pakistan rely entirely on their farms and crops for their survival. But majority of farmers in Pakistan, you know, they very very small subsistence farmers, you know, so they only try to, you know, beat uh, both ends by the end of day, you know. So that's why their priorities are when the, there's a flood, you know, it would be, you know, impacting all the crops that are standing there, the seed, you know, the storage because we don't have, you know, robust storage system in Pakistan either. So that has you know uh, impacted all the grain that was stored the seed that was stored the livestock around 1 million uh, livestock they were just wiped out dr zafar mahmood said that many farmers are still homeless and therefore they're prioritizing the survival of their families before getting back to farming they need to take care of their immediate needs and those include ensuring their homes are rebuilt and provide food and clean water for their families once the safety and well-being of the farmers has been assured then work can begin on revitalizing the soil and re-sowing the crops. Our biggest need right now is for our house to be built, to be worthy of living. 
Houses are the most important. It would be the best if the houses were built. This winter was tough. December and January were extremely cold. We faced many hardships in the cold. Now thankfully the weather is better, but the summer is coming. We won't be able to stay in the same hut then. We will be forced to spend our time under the trees. The priority for the international donor and the government was basically to give them shelter and then you know uh, give them in a uh, cash based assistance. The majority of the houses were destroyed like it's around 8 million I guess. The houses that were damaged and you know, also they need actually basic money for to have their shelter as well. So I think their priority would be actually go back to and uh, have a roof on their top as well or mend their houses if they're repairable, you know. So, you know, having shelter would be a priority. Having clean drinking water would be a priority. So, yes, we are expecting, you know, there would be crisis in the coming months as well. Pakistan was already in crisis in early 2022. The country has been on an International Monetary Fund bailout program since 2019 and its population has been hard hit by strict austerity measures taken as a condition of the bailout. In August 2022, the country's inflation rose to 27.6%, a 47-year high, before the full impact of the floods was felt. On the political scene, former Prime Minister Imran Khan was forced out of office in April, but still maintained immense popular support and galvanised his supporters to hold nationwide protests. And then the floods came. They have compounded the situation to the point where calling it a crisis seems insufficient and diluted. So uh, at the moment, you know, even the people who are living a life over poverty line, you know, they are getting into the poverty line as well because of unemployment, all the other bad indicators of the economic situation of Pakistan as well. And it's very hard to actually differentiate the worst related to flood and worst related to other economic activity and the unemployment. All these figures are so much interconnected, you know. So basically, um, even the economists, you know, would be having a tough challenge to actually exactly pinpoint whether it's enough or not. But I think that was minimum because the kind of infrastructure only that we need to build again, you know, that that is massive. Pakistan has been repeatedly hit by disasters one after another over the past decades. Some climate, some economic, some security related. And now the 2022 floods have made them even more vulnerable. Marvin Parvez is the regional director of an NGO called Community World Service Asia. Him and his team work with people on the ground in Pakistan. He explained that the situation is still extremely dire for millions of Pakistanis. These communities were facing one disaster after another, COVID and uh, the economic meltdown. So this was extremely disruptive thing, totally took away their livelihoods. And I'm talking about, you know, small farmers, uh, they had one acre or two acre plot and they've lost everything. Even the seeds they had for the next season are lost. With their losing everything, all the resources, all the little assets that they had, the children are not going to to school anymore. There's no money for health care. So, you know, if you get sick, it can be very tragic. And, you know, right after the floods, dengue and malaria and and other waterborne diseases were, were rampant. So... It's it's from that human point, I mean, they have really hit the bottom. One of the long-term issues he mentioned was the damage stagnant water could have on the soil, potentially leading to a prolonged food shortage in Pakistan. Well, I, I was uh, talking to these farmers in, in Khairpur area. They, they have small plots of land and they had date trees. 
So when the water is uh, sort of stays on their land for a very long time, it affects the soil. And the, they said that the pH level that gets all disrupted. And that land takes years to re- rehabilitate so it, it can they can grow food and plant their orchards uh, back. So that's uh, what's going to take a lot of resources, a lot of help, a lot of human effort. In January, the international community pledged around 9 billion US dollars at a conference in Geneva to help Pakistan recover from the floods. This was significantly short of the 16 billion required for immediate recovery, according to Foreign Minister Bilawal Bhutto. But at the same time, it is something. Um, we saw that this conference was the start of a process uh, for us to get the uh, funds uh, required together. A total requirement, I think, is slightly above 16 billion dollars. And in the conference today, uh, we've managed to put together a little bit uh, more than nine billion dollars in assistance for the uh, reconstruction and rehabilitation of flood-affected areas in Pakistan. Uh, So I think that that is sort of a good start. The big question, however, is how much of this money is going to be made available for the recovery process by the government. Encouragingly, Prime Minister Sheba Sharif addressed these questions last September during a meeting with the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres. I give you my word of honour, along with all these ladies and gentlemen sitting on this table, ministers, general officers, government officials, ladies and gentlemen, that every penny we get from you or from wherever, we will spend it most transparently and in the interest of the suffering humanity. While Prime Minister Sharif's words are powerful, it's unclear if they will actually translate into action, especially in a country routinely dogged by accusations of corruption and accountability. The other problem with funding commitment, said Dr. Zafar Mahmood, is that it is just that, a commitment. Meaningless if not followed up with action. Actually, it was a commitment, but there's no time frame for that as well. And it comes to donors as well. So the project by project, you know, and sometimes it gets delayed as well. So uh, we really um, are not too sure, you know, because uh, it was only the commitments, you know. So um, it may take much more time. And it was actually not commitment for the immediate release, but it was only for next three to five years. And going by the last major climate disaster, the 2010 Pakistan floods, it's not going to be easy to recover from this one. The massive flood that we had in 2010, we still are, you know, the government of Pakistan still have some projects which are, you know, actually taking care of the damage that was taken, you know, the building, the infrastructure and all these things. So all these things, you know, basically are leading to the conclusion that probably it would take us more than, more than a decade, you know, to actually uh, recover from the losses that we have suffered due to these floods. Pakistan's economy has been terribly mismanaged in the past decade. Low growth, high unemployment, poverty and a dependence on international aid has been a hallmark of the country for decades now. This mismanagement has driven more and more people into poverty and made the country increasingly vulnerable to disasters. But that's not what most commentators, politicians and indeed the media are focusing on. Marvin Parvez again. I think... Economy has has not been managed for for decades very well. Pakistan has been quite dependent on uh, support from uh, from the Middle East, uh, from EU member states, from UK and, and North America. 
it, it would take a lot of hard decisions to actually start uh, a recovery process. And it seems quite difficult because of the political instability in Pakistan. If you pick up a newspaper right now, it will be all about politics, what's happening, what's what's the government doing, what's the opposition doing, who wants election, who doesn't want election. The focus and energy is going so much into in the politics in the country that I see that as, as a, a huge bottleneck for recovery. And I, I really hope that that political stability will bring back economic stability and government would have resources and energy to help the people affected by the recent floods. Scientists and climate experts have been warning the world that extreme weather events, like the flooding seen in Pakistan six months ago, would become more frequent if climate change was not properly dealt with. And at the conference in Geneva, several dignitaries, including the UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres, lamented the injustice that Pakistan is the eighth most vulnerable country to climate change, according to the Global Climate Risk Index, despite contributing so little to global emissions. So my heart broke when I saw firsthand the utter devastation of last summer's floods. No country deserves to endure what happened to Pakistan. And as always, those developing countries least responsible are the first to suffer. Pakistan, which represents less than 1% of global emissions, did not cause the climate crisis. But it is living with its worst impacts. But this cannot be an excuse for inaction, said Marvin Parvez. Pakistan needs to do more. Pakistanis need to do more. Our tree coverage has gone down from, it wasn't great. It was 3, 3% tree coverage in Pakistan. It's gone down almost to 1%. Similarly, the cleaning of canals and uh, of the rivers was not done. Pakistan is again in the top 10 countries affected by uh, water shortages. And, you know, they've, they've been talk about, you know, water wars in South Asia because we really need to change at the household level how we manage our water. How there's a lot of misuse. We lose a lot of water because of the irrigation system we have, the canals, for example. Like I said, they, they need to be cleaned and uh, we need to do a proper job in the canals. The rivers uh, drainage has to be proper. The drainage system has to be improved. There have been uh, World Bank projects in, in Pakistan and also supported by Asian Development Bank that need to be, you know, rehabilitated, uh, repaired. So a lot of steps at household level need to start in the community, in the province, in the country. Climate disasters, most experts agree, are not going to end anytime soon. Everyone is going to be affected and everyone must work towards mitigating their worst effects. It's true uh, what our government says that when you look at the emissions, Pakistan does not even have 1% contributes to that emissions. But at the same level, water management, planting of trees, uh, expanding our, our tree coverage has to be done. Also, climate change, uh, education in schools needs to be done. So a lot of steps have to be done at the community and, and national level in Pakistan to be properly prepared for this, this phenomena. And I think... This is just the start. We'll see more and more disasters on global and, and regional level caused directly by, by climate change. In the grand scheme of things, it's unclear whether the international community will learn much from these floods. 
As the United Nations Development Program Administrator Akim Steiner said in January, it is essential for all countries to alter the way our economies are run to counter the threat of climate change. I think um, the world has begun to realize that uh, climate change has arrived and we will have to not only rethink the way our economies are run, but also how we deal with the catastrophic and almost unprecedented scale of these impacts in the years to come. And while conferences like the one in Geneva are encouraging, it's essential for the international community to do more and more quickly to ensure countries like Pakistan have the resources to deal with the worst climate disasters, which are inevitably coming. So we all, all of us have to join hands to start addressing these big global challenges, which is affecting communities, and especially communities who live in absolute poverty in places in Pakistan and the rest of the world. They need to be supported. They will bear, you know, the, the blunt of, and they won't, they don't have assets to recover. They don't have resources to recover or to manage these uh, climate changes. All of this is well and good, but very little appears to have happened so far. Climate disasters in the past have rarely been met with an immediate source of funding for humanitarian relief, and this is no different. All eyes instead have been firmly fixed on the war in Ukraine, and even typically friendly nations like the UAE and Saudi Arabia have provided no meaningful aid. The government of Pakistan, with its penchant for corruption, immediate political uncertainty and an extremely rickety economy, does not appear equipped to handle this challenge. Some parts of Pakistan are still waterlogged, hundreds of thousands are still homeless, while those who have returned to their land, like Ghulam Mustafa, are still in makeshift housing. The government survey has been done to help rebuild our home, but nothing has happened since then. We have received promises, but nothing else. At the moment, we don't know. I can't say anything. I can't see hope anywhere. But Allah knows best. Maybe something will happen from somewhere. This is our hope from Allah. This episode of The New Arab Voice was written by me, Ali Abbas Ahmadi, and produced by Hugo Goodridge, and featured Muhammad Abuzar. Our theme music was by Omar El Fil. The New Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. We also have a weekly newsletter which you can sign up for. Find the link in the show notes. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news, analysis and opinion from the region. Music